Welcome to RNFM Radio, Nursing Unleashed. We're your hosts, Kevin Ross and Keith Carlson, and we bring you inspiring interviews with a wide array of nursing experts, innovators, and entrepreneurs. We're glad you're here. So welcome and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode here on RNFM Radio. Without a doubt, this is the place where we'll be discussing the latest news, trends, and hot topics in the world of nursing and healthcare. Our guest list, both past and present, span the whole spectrum from nurse author, authors, bloggers, speakers, entrepreneurs, leaders, and thought provokers in the industry. I'm Kevin Ross here, your co-host in my studio in Colorado, my Fellow co-host Keith Carlson is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Keith, how are you, sir? Um, great, Kevin. Thank you. Good evening to everyone out there in the airwaves. Thanks for listening. Whether you're listening live or you're listening archived or on iTunes, we really appreciate you being here. This is episode number 53. I can't believe it. And we're just so excited to have wonderful guests every week. And we'll have some more great guests later to tell you about at the end of the show. There's an amazing array coming up over the next several months. So, Kevin, do you want to tell folks how to uh, connect with us in the course of the show and afterwards? You bet, Keith. And, of course, if you are listening to us live, then you have already found us on Blog Talk Radio. And if you just search Blog Talk Radio and RNFM, you're going to find us. However, if you are looking for us right now, if you're not on Blog Talk Radio, we are chatting it up on Twitter uh, in Tweet Chat. And if you just put this in your uh, web your web address, the URL address, tweetchat one word dot com forward slash room forward slash rnfm radio, and we are chatting under hashtag or as Keith likes to say. Pound RNFM Radio. And so if you're using any kind of uh, aggregator out there like TweetDeck or HootSuite, then you can just put that hashtag RNFM Radio in there. Of course, we appreciate Apple and their iTunes platform because I think a lot of you are finding us there. And so if you open up your iTunes application and go under podcast and up in the search bar, you just type all one word, no spaces, RNFM Radio, and you will find us there. And again, you can, of course, search us uh, via the internet, whether at Yahoo, Google, or Bing. You can just type in RNFM Radio and iTunes and find us uh, via that way. Of course, we cannot forget about our friends over at ProMed Network, promednetwork.com forward slash RNFM Radio. Typically, as soon as the show is uh, has been completed, then ProMed Network has us right up there on the front homepage. And again, we really appreciate, appreciate that uh, being a platform for us. As always, you can call in, and we encourage this. You can listen in 
to us live or call in for questions or comments. That number is 347-308-8064. Thank you, Kevin. That's a great roundup of the ways people can stay connected with us. And am I erroneous in saying pound RNFM radio? I should be saying hashtag, shouldn't I? I was, yeah, I was, I was just giving you a little ribbing there, Keith. You know, uh, I, I like that you did that pound because you're looking at that phone, that dial pad, and I, I just don't worry. It just gives me a little chuckle. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm I'm glad to be a source of inspiration and <laughs> comedy for you, Kevin. All in good fun, sir. Don't oh, worry. Oh, good. Thank you so much. So, anyway, we're going to move on. And uh, before we digress any further and introduce our guest of the evening, her name is Susan Katz. Slisky. She is a newly minted doctor of nursing practice, also known as a DNP. She has four decades of nursing experience, including critical care, case management, occupational health, international health consulting, and healthcare innovation consulting. Presently, she serves at a national level for the American Association of Occupational Health Nurses, also known as the AAOHN, and she's the co-chair of the International Committee for Best Practices. She is an adjunct faculty member at Regis College in Weston, Massachusetts, not far from my old hometown, and she teaches advanced research. She's also a full-time consultant at a startup company involved in building the next generation of wireless patient monitoring and informatics devices. So Susan Katzlitsky, welcome to RNFM Radio. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Keith. This is a real pleasure. Thank you. Oh, we're, it's really a pleasure to have you here. You and I had a conversation on the phone a few months ago, and I was so excited to bring our first doctor of nursing practice onto the show and talk about this very important topic for the profession. So can you tell us a little bit uh, more about your clinical experience and then how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, I started as a critical care nurse with... Um, mostly focused on a unit that had open-heart patients and, yes, um, burn patients with greater than 50% body burns in the same unit. Back then, uh, critical care units were just uh, starting, and uh, although it sounds comical today, we did put the same, those types of patients in the same unit. Um, and then I continued on um, from an associate degree onto a bachelor's degree into a master's program, um, and then um, most recently graduated with my doctorate. So it's been um, been involved with nursing and uh, more education for a long time. Wow. Well, congratulations on the DNP. Now, when did you graduate? When did you earn that very important and impressive designation? Yeah, I, I actually um, graduated last May. So um, it, it was quite a landmark for me. It took a long time. Fantastic, fantastic. And so, um, you know, Susan, I wanted to, I was telling Keith that um, earlier on, before you got on the call, we were we were kind of having our pre-show roundup here. And sure. I first learned about the DNP uh, program. Columbia was talking about this at around, ooh, about 2007. And that's when I kind of got my introduction. Uh, into into what that really is. And so for our listeners out there, you know, this designation, it's obviously uh, a relatively new uh, piece here when it comes to advanced practice. And and we've also heard about it being somewhat controversial as well. 
And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, becoming a DNP and really what that means? Sure. Well, let's start a little bit with the history because I think to understand the controversy, you need to understand the birth of this whole program and the energy behind it. So if we can just um, look back a little bit, um, in 2004, um, there was a lot of um, uh, discussions in Washington about the growing uh, aged population and the lack of uh, practitioners that, that were going to be available to take care of the baby boomers. And that's not news to any of us. We've been living that. And all as nurses, we, we were quite aware of that. But the issue became... Um, so who is going to take care of the aged population? And uh, we needed more uh, educators to uh, educate this next generation of, of nurses and nurse practitioners. And so the really at a national level, many, many people, and, and the National Institute of Health, as a matter of fact, led one of the major conversations, said we need to create a way for nurses to be educated by doctorally prepared um, colleagues that had extensive backgrounds. And the conversation started in 2004 and, as you had shared, um, emerged in 2007 into the what is now called the DNP program. It took about three years for people to come together, all of the different structures, and, and put together a program. And it so happened that in 2007, I was in Washington um, as a um, with AAOHN. I had actually been selected out of all of the nurses um, nationally in AOHM to go to Washington to do what was called a program called a nurse in Washington where you go for a week and learn about how to become a lobbyist. And when I was sent by AOHM, I had um, lobbyist agendas about occupational health that I was to um, prepare and present to various Congress people and senators that I was to meet with. But when we got there, the American Association of Nurses sat down with all of the different nurses from the different organizations and really asked us if we would set aside our individual group agendas and take our time with our senators and our congressmen and women and talk about the nursing shortage, talk about the need for a DMP program, and to ask for their support. So, in fact, I led the Massachusetts team um, in our um, opportunities to chat with the late Senator Kennedy and Senator Kerry at the time to ask them to support this brand new program called the DNP in order to have a practice-based doctorate be the way that nurses of the future would be educated. So that's sort of really how I got involved with it. Wow. So you met with Ted Kennedy and you met with, well, the now current um, uh Senator Kerry, who actually is no longer a, a senator, of course. So you met with them to discuss with them what it would mean to create the doctor of nursing practice and how it might impact the current nursing shortage at that time? Well, actually, they had the American um, College of Nurses, um, had uh, American Association of, uh, sorry, of College of Nursing and the American Nurses Association had already put together um, a program, but they needed to have support for that on a national basis. And so we, we were asking um, the late Senator Kennedy and, and then Senator Kerry to vote and support the passage of this new designation to make it legal for a nurse to be called a DMP. So that's what we asked for. And of course, we had to educate them 
as to why this was important to us as a profession and how it would impact um, nurses in the future and the care that they would provide for um, all of the patients all over the country. Hmm. So interesting. I, I never understood myself personally that it would take an act of Congress to create this new designation. So that's actually what was necessary to for this to become a reality? That was not clear to me. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure that it took an act of Congress per se, but what it did is it, it, it required that people um, permit the designation to become a legal form of, of, um, of, of status and of, of, of of a designation that um, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't exactly say. Uh, I don't recall exactly what the process was in order to gain that, but I know there was a, there was there was legal authority that was required in order to have the DMP be a form of of um, accepted designation. Oh. Interesting. Now, Susan. Um, what was, because I was over on Twitter, I don't know that you mentioned this or not, or if we were sure. talking about this. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any kind of knowledge about the number of programs available right now currently that are uh, accepting and, of course, graduating DNPs at this moment? Sure. I can. I, I took a look um, earlier today, and the, the best um, data that I could find that was accurate was from the American Association of College of Nursing. And they state that um, there are uh, there were 90 DMP programs um, in 2008 that met the um, the designation requirements. And there's a whole process that one has to go through in order to for schools to first uh, put together a program and then have that program be accepted um, and then have the first graduates actually be able to bear that designation. And they said that there were 102 DMP programs uh, in the planning stages, and that data was from 2008. And so the the best data that I could find is it looks like there's about 145 programs that um, actually have the the designation that they can offer graduating students with another uh, 40 to 50 in the queue working up. And interestingly enough, they seem to be located um, in, they're not spread across the whole country. There's only 34 states that are offering these programs, predominantly in the East. But most uh, most of the programs are in Florida, Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Interesting, but nonetheless, there, you know, at least when I was looking at it at around 2007, 2008, it's not just a handful of universities. Now um, we're starting to see this. Uh, you know, across the board. And I know the University of Colorado does have a program uh, as well. And they are also, uh, as of, what, 1965, they were the first, uh, as far as to my knowledge and what how they market it, the first nurse practitioner program in the country or advanced practice nurse. Yeah, so so there's a couple of people that kind of try to lay claim to being the first, and we sure. won't bother to, to argue who, who was first. But um, I, I, I did find uh, on, a, on a, the same sort of idea, but on a slightly different note, there are a lot of – it is the most uh, fast-growing program um, in the United States. And for those people who believe that nurses should have PhDs rather than DNPs, I found an interesting article that was in uh, the Nursing Economics um, Journal 
talking about uh, the discussion between whether PhD programs should be supported or the DNP programs, and that perhaps uh, this whole DNP thing should slow down and more PhDs should be uh, supported. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting um, discussion by our own colleagues about ourselves. Mm. Now, Susan, the DNP designation, Kevin and I were discussing this earlier, and it appears that the purpose of it is really to create doctoral-level clinicians, nurse clinicians, correct? Because nurses can get can earn doctorates and head towards research or other areas, but this is really for clinical purposes specifically. Is that true? Well, actually, I would like to change your word um, from clinical to um, really uh, looking at it from the perspective of um, an advanced practice nurse that um, offers both leadership um, as well as education as well as clinical work. The DNP, the P stands for practice, not practitioner. One thing that you and I chatted about earlier that I would love to clarify is that it's not a requirement to be a nurse practitioner to then become a doctorate of nursing practice. They actually are separate, um, although I'd like to spend a little time talking about how um, where some of the controversy comes in. So to back up a little bit, the doctorate of nursing practice designation was originally conceived to have nurses who had um, extensive clinical experience teach and educate the next generation of nurses and to provide leadership both in policy and in practice and in um, the business of healthcare. It was originally not conceived. The original founders in 2004 and to, up to 2007 did not conceive this process as creating a doctorate of nursing practice for which nurse practitioners could then um, claim a level of practice equal to a physician. However, what has happened, and, and it's very interesting and, and has actually become significantly controversial, is that many of these very bright colleagues that I sit shoulder to shoulder with who have deep clinical experience have gone through a DNP program and have actually passed the phase three medical um, examinations, which um, they now think um, demonstrates their uh, similarity in their ability to practice medicine as, as similar to a person who has gone through medical school and passed the same exam. So mm. that's a one of the bits of confusion and um, that has rattled the American Medical Association is that perhaps nurses are stepping on their toes when it comes to primary care. I see. Okay. So, Kevin, go ahead with your question. I think I know what you're going to ask, but go for it. Well, and, and that's the thing uh, here, Susan, is that obviously, as you said, it's a bit of controversy controversy here when it comes to the education and that gap between what an advanced practice nurse uh, can do or what he or she's, what her um, education is in regards to, to the uh, education and residency and so on and so forth with a physician. And you're right. I've, I've heard 
out there in in the uh, you know the interwebs as I like to call them about physicians you know basically saying if you wanted to be a doctor then you should have gone to medical school and there seems to be a lot of banter back and forth now <clears throat> that being said and I and and I'd love to have you uh, potentially expand on that but sure. there was a post that was on well it was an article in the Washington Post and I'm sure you might have heard something about this and and obviously you know, with your involvement um, with Congress and is is that, okay, we've got the Affordable Care Act, that we've got millions of Americans that are going to be insured, that obviously some of these Americans are, are going to have quite a bit of complexity because they do not have the long-term relationships with a primary care provider because they've been bouncing from ERs to urgent cares and so on and so forth. However, there seems to be a turf war there because of the guidelines and the regulations involved, because obviously we know that physicians have a an autonomy or a scope of practice where they're able to provide, um, you know, written plans of care and orders to, let's say, for example, have someone uh, get home care services or hospice care, where it seems that advanced practice nurses are having a limited scope when it comes to those types of services for our patients. And so with this Affordable Care Act, what are your thoughts on that in regards to this turf war? And how can we as nurses help with this so that our patients can get the continuity of care, the safe uh, and, and great patient care that they're already getting from advanced practice nurses? And I know this is a very long sort of question and statement, um, but I think it just sort of leads right into what you were talking about with that controversy. Yeah, well, let's let's kind of break this down into bite-sized pieces because otherwise it just mm-hmm. gets to be, you know, very, very complex. First of all, sure. let me just share with you that I am not a nurse practitioner, and my um, my master's program um, was actually in, um, uh, I have a degree in nursing administration and business, um, and my background is um, in, in um, case management and, the, and uh, managing very large, statewide programs for the poor and the elderly in the state of Massachusetts, um, as well as um, now I'm involved um, with uh, innovating some new products for the exact environment that you're talking about, the next generation of providing home care. So I I just want to clarify that because as a professor, one of of my styles is I always try to uh, make a difference between that which is my opinion and that which I reference from other authorities. And I'd like to do that going forward because I think it's really important that we um, share information that is both uh, opinion-based as well as fact-based. So the challenge, if we look at the history, is that there are many pockets of underserved elderly and poor around the country. At the same time, there is a uh, there are not many or not adequate enough uh, people um, educated and prepared in primary uh, care to provide services for these people in remote locations, or even in our inner cities as it's it's been uh, challenged as well. So on the one hand, the argument that physicians are um, the best people to provide care, and we're talking about primary care here. We're not talking about cardiac surgery or, um, you know, programs which really have a different preparation requirement. We're talking about providing primary care um, services to um, people. So having said that, I think that um, 
on the one hand, we don't have enough primary care physicians to to provide services for the people that need it. And the, really the origin of the nurse practitioner program, if you look deep into that, is that emerged as an answer to provide services for the well, the primary care services for well people, um, and then to identify at, at the edge of that people who perhaps had more needs, and, and the process would be to refer that patient to a specialist, and most likely an MD. Now here we are, we're faced with this intersection of nurses like myself with decades of experience, um, deep clinical backgrounds, and now education over time. And some of my colleagues, and, and I, I agree with some of these people, say, golly gee, if I've spent 40 years becoming and practicing a nurse and educating myself, and I have gone through years and years of not only um, tutorial-type classroom schooling, but also application in the field, and I have um, been able to pass what's called the Step 3 exam, which is the United States Medical Licensing Exam Board that assesses whether you can apply medical knowledge and understanding of biomedical and clinical science essential for the, the unsupervised practice of medicine with the emphasis on patient management in ambulatory settings. And I'm reading from the United States Medical Licensing Exam Board definition, and, and that was a direct quote from them. And so if some of my colleagues can, and it turned out that 50%, 50% of nurses who went to the DMP program who voluntarily sat for that exam passed. Now, the challenge here is, if it's about providing quality primary care in ambulatory settings, and these nurses can pass the benchmark by which physicians pass it, then I think that's excellent. They're, they're, they're terrific providers. But where the real rub comes in, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but I listen to my colleagues. The real rub comes in is that nurse practitioners get paid $78 per visit, and for the same visit, the physician gets paid $318 by Medicare and Medicaid to see a well patient visit. And so that, I think, is a real dilemma that we need to look at. Wow. Well, did, did you just say that nurse practitioners are paid $78 for the same visits that physicians receive how much for? Approximately $318 for the same visit in the state of Massachusetts for a well visit. Wow. Okay, and this is specifically in Massachusetts. Yeah, those fees vary slightly from state to state as colleagues listen to this around the different parts of the country. Um, well visits and basically uh, what people, the, the Medicare rates that are paid for elderly services vary slightly from state to state. People may or may not know that. Um, the federal government um, is, the, is the government that actually implements the Medicare program and the Medicaid program. But within each state, um, the way that the money is managed is slightly different. So the rates are not exactly the same from state to state. I see. Okay, so that's specifically for Massachusetts. But I think we can probably extrapolate that around the country and see that, that nurse practitioners and advanced, advanced level nurses are paid significantly less per visit than MDs in general. Correct. Right. And I, and I think so, th this is where the unexpected 
controversy has emerged is that the original design and intent for a DMP was never, I don't think anybody ever really thought that nurses would be so amazingly smart that they could test these exams and challenge the American Medical Association. And they thought that was audacious. And yet uh, they've underestimated um, myself and, and my colleagues who have um, are obviously brilliant practitioners. Well, that that seems very very apparent from from my perspective. So I just wanted to get some clarity from you, if if possible, that this exam that some advanced practice nurses are taking, that's the same exam that some physicians that all physicians take to prove that they're competent. Are the nurse practitioners and advanced practice nurses taking this as a requirement, or are they taking it in order to prove their their medal, so to speak. No, that's, that's a great question. No, they, they are, it's not a requirement. It was never a design of the program. It is um, for those who have really taken this program to the next step and said, um, you know, why not? Why not see if we can pass this exam? Um, but I also want to share at some point that not all of us that have gone through this program had a des this design in mind when we went through. Um, there are many of my colleagues, like myself, who were really looking um, toward a different model. So while this controversy um, has been created by those who wish to actually provide primary care and to challenge its boundaries and to demonstrate the quality that they bring, not all of us that have gone in the DNP program, that's not all of our, our goals. Right. And so, I mean, is it is it safe to say, because, again, when it comes to the turf wars, you know, there's the medical model, uh, you know, to provide the patient care and then obviously achieve that diagnosis. And then there's the nursing model. But essentially, it's, there's the nursing model versus the medical model. But aren't we getting to the same diagnoses? Maybe the plan of care could be a little altered based on the nursing model versus the medical model. But we're really ending up are we really ending up in, in sort of that end point when it comes to the, the diagnoses and the, the plan of care for the patient? I believe we are because, um, and, and this is why I want to share that this is my opinion, um, the Doctor of Nursing Practice is a program that is rooted in evidence-based um, practice. So for me, it took me three years to do my thesis because I literally had to read three years worth of literature on the topic that I was um, researching um, and, and not, it wasn't an apprentice program, it was um, to make sure and to do research on the evidence that was available about um, uh, issues that, that I was particularly concerned about. So a DNP uh, education is focused on evidence and that evidence should be the same as what a physician is is benchmarking their practice about um, about what how they take care of patients. Well, I'm glad you said that, Susan, because I I personally will put it on the record that I agree with you. I agree with that statement. And you know the the healthcare system itself. I mean, there's a huge paradigm shift, and and I think nurses really need to kind of get on board with that. And, you know, as a consultant myself, I, I talk to nurses about becoming consultants and really getting out there on the front lines of care when it comes into the, you know, into the communities and really triaging that situation. 
but it often seems as whether it's the nursing model or the medical model, again, we are coming to that conclusion that's very similar and, you know, aligned with what, you know, patient care is seen in the medical uh, community or, like I said, that medical model. Um, and it's it's shifting. There's a shift. And really, the system is going to have to embrace that. And whether you get to that final, like I said, answer for the patient via the, the way of the nursing route or the medical route, we're getting there. Uh, and we've got to figure out a way how to, to, to collaborate and not have these turf wars in between getting really to to uh, the crux of the issue, and that is excellent patient care and safe patient care. And, again, advanced practice nurses across the board, the research shows, the feedback is there, that there is there are good patient outcomes, positive outcomes. I think the other factor, too, and this is my opinion, and I'd like to offer it as such, um, is that the whole um, insurgence into the medical world about the fact that patients themselves want to own their own records and their own um, experiences and their own therapies. And patients, as we know, people ourselves, are standing up and demanding that they participate as, as equal um, purveyors of, of, of medical care. And this is also going to change things because patient quality, as perceived by the individual, has to now play a part in how we make decisions. Long, has, long gone are the days now where uh, one individual, whatever that person's title was, sat aloof from the patient and made decisions and then walked away. This is a team process. Um, patients need guidance. Some of them are well-informed. Some of them are not well-informed. But it is a process that we all need to embrace. And I think probably one of the biggest aha moments that I had from this whole DNP process and now going out and searching for new jobs and presenting myself in a new way is to really realize that nurses are really um, social researchers. We, know, we have stood beside patients. We have poured the medicines into them. We have watched them react to drugs. We know who takes drugs well. We know who doesn't. And we have a wealth of knowledge about how patients as individuals respond to therapies. And that is becoming more and more important. Well, thank you for bringing that up in terms of the difference between advanced practice nurses and physicians, for instance. And Susan, I wanted to ask, what do you feel are the, the true benefits to patients and what are nurse practitioners and especially DNPs bringing to the exam table, so to speak, that you feel physicians maybe are not bringing to the table, if you'd like to go there? Um. I think, I think we have a different philosophy of care right from the beginning, or certainly those of us that have been around for a while, in that, as I share with you, um, we've actually uh, stood by patients while they've um, undergone therapies, and we've watched individualization of the reaction, as opposed to physicians who uh, may have provided uh, prescriptions or interventions and then walked away as we implemented those those um, prescriptions. So I think we hold a different body of knowledge about how individuals react and how to manage individuals' um, 
reactions, uh, both psychosocial as well as physiological. And I think that's what the public wants right now. The public wants more understanding about how to manage themselves. I don't think it's something, I don't think that we bring something that should be separate from what a physician brings or a doctorate of pharmacy or physical therapy or psychology or any of the other professions. I think it's about educating the public as to who to go to for what services. And we are all stronger when we work together. You know, I think the whole providing healthcare right now is so complex with all the emergence of genetic information, all of the changes in pharmacology every week. Um, it takes a real team to really provide the best service. That, that's my belief anyway. I see. Well, thank you for that. And, and a follow-up question I have then is that we often talk about how physicians, for instance, appear to get maybe an hour of education regarding nutrition during the course of their medical school training and maybe not so much psychosocial skill training as nurses and advanced practice nurses. Do you feel that DNPs and NPs bring that which MDs appear to often be lacking, in, especially in terms of nutrition and psychosocial interventions with patients? I think the programs, uh, including the physician programs, um, are changing dramatically. I'm, I'm very proud to say I have a niece who is waiting to hear from, to be accepted from medical school right now, and so I've been familiar with what um, the different programs that she's looked at. I think the, the nursing programs and the physician training programs and the pharmacy programs and the physical therapy programs are really looking in a very different way as to how to provide services. And so I think um, the old-style um, programs are, are all being shifted, uh, and I say that with great hope because I think that, as you have um, shared, uh, genetic information, nutrition information, all of these things that were sort of on the edge or perhaps considered not central to making decisions are now uh, being recognized as being very important. And, and the, real, the real reason that we can consider all this extra data now is through technology is because we have computer systems, and if the one of probably the best thing that Obamacare will do for us all is the um, imposition of electronic medical records uh, on the United States so that we actually have a way to um, do retrospective studies and for people to share data that is actually accurate and reviewable. And I'm not sure that people actually really appreciate uh, what an impact having everything be on an electronic record so that you can actually data mine accurately over time, um, what a powerful thing this is going to be. Mm. So in terms of the electronic medical record, you feel like that will empower clinicians and also allow patients to bring their information with them so that there's more coordination of care among specialists and providers? Absolutely. Um, patients will, um, certainly patients 50 years old and younger will, um, I believe, start demanding that they um, have copies of all their records. They'll keep their records. They'll um, understand how important they are. And they'll also be easier to keep them on a disc or a stick or on their laptop or wherever. I think um, patients that are 65 and older, some of them who may be reluctant to adopt technology, will have to be helped by their family 
or by um, people that care for them to um, have, uh, you know, an integrity of their records. But the medical practice as a whole will be able to surf each other's work uh, seamlessly and be able to build on each other's inputs rather than um, uh, being left in these parallel universes where we couldn't read each other's writing or we couldn't get a hold of the chart or all the other things that we know that have just stood in the way. Well, I can certainly attest and be an evangelist for that type of system. I definitely love technology and especially how we can implement it into our practice as nurses and, and clinicians. But what I did want to, and I want to discuss that further, but I just wanted to quickly circle back uh, really quickly Certainly. here, Susan, and talk about you know DNP, and we've also talked about BSN uh, in regarding in regarding the entry into nursing. Now, uh-huh. do you feel because there are some statements out there that you know because of the BSN now then there's the DNP. Is there really are we creating a barrier uh, for entry for potential uh, students, nursing students, to to really want to get into that uh, profession? because of these uh, extra pieces here, the extra education that we're kind of talking about and, and there are organizations talking about, okay, well, we need to kind of set that as a, as a minimum to to uh, enter into this field or into that level of nursing? Well, it's interesting we should ask that because um, I teach at a master's level um, and I teach sort of an entry course where um, students are need to take my course, and then after it, they go either into the nurse practitioner program or onto a clinical specialist program. And of course, a lot of them are wondering, um, you know, which is the best direction, and and what is the future promising them. Um, you know, I I answer them that the rhetoric that the profession um, is pushing forward that all nurses should have doctoral degrees. Is, is really the edge of the profession talking about the um, idealistic goals, the very best that, that they would like to have. And that to, and that this learning is a lifelong commitment. It is not something that needs to be done and completed when you're early in life. And I'm certainly, a, a, you know, I, I could attest to that. In fact, I can just say that I think I've enjoyed my educational moments more over time um, than if I had gone through in a straight um, direction. However, everybody needs to follow their own rhythm. But to answer your question about the entry of a BSN, I think I think we kind of have asked and answered that question that um, everybody in the United States, right, wrong, or indifferently, believes that young people should have a bachelor's degree and um, as a level of education. And that certainly for nurses, I, I don't think that we want to go back to having nurses called um, nurses who have less than four years of preparation. Um, and I, I think that young people or people, many of my students are second careers. In fact, the majority of my students have um, had an undergrad in something else. Uh, and I have students everywhere from 22 years old who just finished an undergrad program all the way up to um, 60 years old, who've had full and rich um, experiences in another uh, profession and have decided that um, at this point in their life they wanted to become a nurse. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, it really, really good. you can enter the profession at any time. Did I answer your question or not really? 
Well, well, you you did, and, and I mean, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you here, and we do need to have some kind of consistent entry point as far as okay, you, you're right. Having a baccalaureate degree is is something that across the board, pretty much every profession out there, at a minimum, has. And so, again, I am in agreement with the baccalaureate as as a point where okay, um, that that's you know, as far as your education is concerned. A BSN is is it for a nurse? Now, there, again, I don't want to really bring in that component where we have twenty and thirty year vet- veterans RNs out there, and what do we do for them when you've got hospitals mandating that they go back to school to obtain that BSN? I didn't really want to go in that direction, but you know, when you talk about BSN as a minimum, and then you talk about we we start talking about these doctoral degrees as discussion about as a minimum for advanced practice down the road. I think that that could, in some way, discourage uh, nurses to to seek those degrees. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point in that we don't want to present this as being so overwhelming that people feel that they can never get there because it's such a long process. Right now, it's less than 1% of all nurses in the United States that have any designated doctoral degree. I think if you look back, at the original voices of who who spoke up about wanting to have um, more opportunities for doctoral degrees, it was the American Nurses Association and the American College of uh, I'm sorry, the American Nurses um, College that said we need to have uh, more opportunities for nurses to become doctorally prepared, and the PhD process, on average, was very lengthy. And also, it, it pointed in a direction that was not evidence-based. And so, I think if we kind of take a, kind of pull back a little bit and realize that this is a great advance and a great opportunity for those people who choose it. Um, and and it's really, um, while it may be a goal, uh, it'll be a, it'll it'll take. Um, my personal opinion is it is it's it's not a realistic goal both financially or realistically, to expect everybody to be doctorally prepared to provide services. Mm-hmm. Well, Susan, there was some concern voiced over the last few years, just in the circles I've been conversing in, that eventually the master's level advanced practice nurse, you know, the, the traditional nurse practitioner, was going to be superseded by a requirement for advanced practice nurses to become doctorally prepared. So you're saying that that's not necessarily headed in that direction? No, I, I do think that your comment um, is is represented by people who have a nurse who are nurse practitioners and who are under the um, who are in the situation that we talked about earlier where they're providing primary care and being paid approximately half to a third of what the physicians are, I think their position is will be to push that nurse practitioners become DNPs. And this is where it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a problem that we both bear the same title but actually function or perhaps function in different ways. So it's almost a shame that that title. Um, or those letters that then could become confusing. I think that the nurse practitioners 
who choose to provide primary care and who wish to to be paid on, at the same level of equity for providing the same services as physicians will continue to fight for that um, respect. And um, while those of us who bear the same title will go on to do different work and have different impact in, in um, the nursing um, world. I see. So if an advanced practice nurse would like to pursue doctoral designation in order to be reimbursed at the level of a physician, my next question then would be, and I'm not sure if you have an answer to this, would Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance world actually be willing to reimburse an advanced practice nurse at the same level? And those certainly are excellent questions for discussions that will continue down the road. Um, right. And that's where, you know, they will have to lobby for um, that, that, those discussions. Um, and um, I think that, that those are some really valid questions. And, um, and, and for my colleagues, not for myself, because this is not my passion, they will have to come to some uh, understanding and some agreement on that. I see. Okay. Now, I have a follow-up question because I'm still trying to gain a certain level of clarity, and I'm assuming some of our listeners may be trying to attain that clarity as well. So pardon me if I'm revisiting something we've already discussed earlier in the hour. So just, no to give me, just allow me. So if, say, I'm a bachelor's prepared, prepared nurse, which I am personally, and what? I decided that that I would like to go on for advanced practice nursing, and I'm looking at the possibility of, okay, I'm going to enter a nurse practitioner program and become a family nurse practitioner. What would be the incentive aside from reimbursement potential in the future to really just go for it and get the doctoral degree? What would really be the incentive for the nurse? Well, I can only speak for my students. Um, you know, I've been teaching now for five years, and um, I teach adjunct faculty because I, I work as well. Um, usually what happens, to be perfectly honest, is once you get back into the swing of school, it is a very exciting place. And um, to become a nurse practitioner, the um, curriculum, regardless of which track you take, and as I'm sure you're aware, you can become a family nurse practitioner or a pediatric nurse practitioner, um, or there are many subspecialties where you can um, uh, practice. There's a psychiatric nurse practitioner. There are many avenues to take within those, within those programs. I find that most of the students, once they get into the swing of it, are so excited that, um, and, and once they... Um, get in the swing of, of school. Um, for most of us, it was relearning how to go to school. But for some of my students, they just continue to go to school. You, know, it, you sort of fall into the DNP um, and roll out the other side, um, really kind of uh, as part of being on the same train. So it's kind of a natural progression. However, mm -hmm. it's not a requirement, and there are many people who need to pause um, and rightly so, to get some experience, to gain some money. Many people have gone back to become a nurse practitioner, to have an independent license, to have a different kind of job, to care for their family. Um, and so many people pause five or ten years um, in order to, 
you know, pay their bills, buy a house, you know, do the normal things that you do when you work. Uh, and, and it's something that you can pause and come back to later. Right. But in terms of pursuing the doctoral education, I'm assuming that's a huge financial um, a huge financial liability for the student because of the cost of the doctoral education. So some will probably pursue the doctoral degree because of the knowledge and information that they'll glean from that experience. Some will be because they feel there'll be potential for higher reimbursements at some point for for uh, primary care that they provide. So there's there's various incentives for pursuing that doctoral designation. I, I agree, and I think it really depends where they're located in the United States, what the opportunities are, um, and um, I do think that reimbursement um, and opportunity really um, varies from different state to state. I know in the, in the New England area, we're kind of clogged with uh, a lot of um, highly trained nurses, and we can't find jobs here at all. But um, in other parts of the, of the state, um, there are great opportunities. So I think if you're willing to um, relocate um, and to go where there are job openings, um, I think that um, th- th- there's great opportunity. Right. And well, go ahead. Keith. Uh, go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. No, please, you, you, <clears throat> gentlemen first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate that, sir. So. Sure. You know, when we talk about those opportunities, and um, we, you were talking about also to, to take that pause, that financial pause, like, hey, I've, I've got to start working because I've got to pay bills. You know, th- there are those nurses who go straight from, they go right into college, they get their BSN, and they go right into an advanced practice program and even right into DNP with very little uh, you know, bedside or clinical experience. And so... I, you know, I've seen both sides here where you can kind of say the same for, for med school. So you go undergrad and then you go into med school and you do your residency. I don't want to necessarily say that those are one and the same. However, from a marketability standpoint and really probably from a clinical knowledge standpoint, how do you feel about that regarding a nurse after their, their BSN, they get some clinical experience and then come back and go into advanced practice and then go for that DNP uh, versus someone just going straight through? You know, I think this is the sort of nature versus nurture argument. Um, I think there's no good answer. I think we clearly can identify young people who go straight to a program who are not ready emotionally or um, to deal with the work associated with um, being an advanced practice nurse, and yet there they are with a license. Um, And and at the same time, there are some young people, um, you can argue the opposite, that they are better able to um, do this academics. They're more technologically savvy. They can become um, quicker at all of the the various techniques that are available. And um, so they're better at those things, and and they need to wait and grow and learn about life um, on their own. So there's, there's... Strengths and weaknesses to both pathways. I don't think there's one pathway to success, but I will share with you that here in Northeast, we are so oversubscribed for um, students in our nursing programs that the majority of my students that I have um, are older, um, have had an undergrad degree um, most often in another discipline. Everywhere, my students this semester range everywhere from an undergrad in engineering um, to English, 
um, and, and nursing as well. And I think that that um, broad background will only strengthen us. But I think we're all fearful of the young, inexperienced person who has power that they don't understand. And I guess the only difference, I think, is uh, there's no difference between a young resident who is naive and, and, and has not had the opportunity to live life enough to understand the complexities of certain situations. And I don't think they're any different than a young nurse practitioner who might go through and become a doctor of nursing practice in their late 20s and emerge with the responsibility of caring for life and death in the elders. I think that they have to learn on the fly, and um, there's a real reason why we need to work in teams. Well, Susan, thanks for bringing up that issue. I think it's really great to hear that sort of sane take on the fact that, that a young medical resident who's, say, perhaps 22 or 23, doesn't have a great deal of life experience, and they're really kind of learning on the fly, like you said, whereas you might have a young nurse practitioner student who's in the same, basically in the same boat. And at the same time, prior to that, you also said that we have a lot of nurses coming into the profession who have previous careers, and they're bringing real rich history personally and professionally into their nursing career. And I think that is a real strength that we see in the nursing profession. I just wanted to comment on that. And I now I have a question. Oh, I think I lost you. Oh, oh yeah, Keith. I think you – hold on one second, Keith. You bounced yeah. off for a second. Go ahead and start yeah. that over again. Now, now you're okay. back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. That's okay. So, uh, I wanted to say that Nurse Friendly said that there's a Florida Senate bill, SB 612, that makes it a felony offense for nurses to use the title doctor if they don't immediately declare that they do not, that they're actually not doctors. Have you heard anything about this bill that's making its way through the Florida Senate? Absolutely. There's been a lot of conversation on the um, American Nurses Association. Um, sort of blog where people have been, you know, obviously all over the board very angry about whether um, someone like myself should call themselves a doctor or not. And and, and specifically in reaction to that, um, my personal opinion, enormously narrow-minded bill, which says that if a nurse dares to call themselves a doctor, that, that that would, in a clinical situation, that would be a felony. And yet, I know in the state of Massachusetts, when we do rounds clinically, you know, I'm shoulder to shoulder with colleagues who have doctorates in pharmacy, doctorates in, in physical therapy, and they are introduced as Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones. Now, I do believe that the one point that's valid is that the public really doesn't understand um, these different types of backgrounds, and, and it will take a while for um the public to understand what these designations mean. And I think there is a responsibility to say that I am a doctor of nursing, not a, a physician, and what I bring to the table is different. Just as a doctorate in physical therapy would identify his or herself the same way. So I think that that really reflects this sort of paranoia thing that um, the only person who can call themselves a doctor is an MD, 
which I, I personally think is um, laughable since um, there are many people who have advanced degrees, PhDs, um, DNPs, and all the other doctorally prepared people who are introduced as doctors, and, um, and rightly so. Wow, interesting. So you're saying that that there's it's a very narrow-minded view and that you were saying that a, a doctorally prepared physical therapist would be referred to as doctor if you were going on rounds but that Absolutely. there's but there's resistance on some level from calling a doctorally prepared nurse doctor because it's stepping on toes that they don't want stepped on Absolutely, and I think that, you know, whenever you break through a glass ceiling, um, you uh, bounce up against these um, types of prejudices that come mostly from fear and ignorance, and I think that once people understand that um, uh, it takes many different practitioners with a different background and different perspective to provide services and that when we all join together, we provide um the best level of care, and oh, by the way, that often is the cheapest care as well because the right care in the right location is always cheaper than redundant care and care that covers up errors or create or manifests itself in mistakes. So I'm, I'm an advocate for anything that provides the best quality care for patients, and if that means bringing the best um, educated and up-to-date team of people to the bedside, then so be it and they should be identified as their credentials um, that they've earned. Mm, thank you. Well, and Susan, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the DNP and, uh, you know, the pros and the cons and, and the, the gathering some footing here and the turf wars, but I did want to at least give you another opportunity if there is anything that you would love to wrap up about the you know being a consultant at this startup company with the um, wireless patient monitoring uh, and informatics, if, if there's anything that you would like for us and the listeners out there to know about that or to promote, I uh, just wanted to give you that opportunity to sort of wrap up on that note, if if that's okay. Sure, thank you. I, I think what I'd like to to end with is to share perhaps a little different um, scope of what I'm doing with why I became a DNP and, and about the work that I'm doing. So my thesis was actually on nurses' injuries. And I think one of the things that people are um, profoundly unaware of is how dangerous nurses' work is. And as a nurse who worked in occupational health and worked in industries where people were constantly being, uh, employees were managed for how much they lifted and what risks they were at work, I found it profoundly um, odd that nurses are not provided the same level of um, protection. And what I mean by that is the average, as a result of my thesis work, um, just to give you some idea, the average nurse in the United States lifts 1.7 tons of weight per shift. The average nurse in the United States is 48 to 52 years old. And this type of information just just made me um, shocked that this was the kind of working environment that we were in. So my thesis work was to document the, the management intersection about how nurses are managed and, and why they're put at these kinds of risks and why organizations 
don't um, respond and provide better opportunities for nurses to um, decrease their musculoskeletal injuries. And on that note, it made me focus on nurses' work in general. Um, and some other interesting things that are going on right now is that the majority of nurses spend their time away from patients. Um, a recent article um, that was written by several leading authorities, both in the West Coast and the middle of the country, documented that only 7% of a nurse's time working in the hospital is actually with patient care. All the rest of her activities are document documenting and preventing um, uh, basically taking care of all the other processes associated with taking care of patients, but only 7% of her time was available to actually provide patient care. So my work with this new startup company is to, to try to make an impact in the way that nurses work and that they're not slaves to technology anymore or lifting things that are um, too heavy. And um, so I had the opportunity uh, to, to work with a company that doesn't even have a name yet, um, and to have an impact on the design of equipment that will be uh, the size of a cell phone, that will be wireless, that can be worn anywhere in a hospital, and um, there will no, no longer be the requirement to connect the patient to the wall. Um, and uh, my goal is to have that be able to go home with patients um, and so that we can have seamless electronic medical records and that patients um, and, and nurses work um, can really be impacted so that she and he can take more time with really what patients need, which is to be listened to and to be cared for as individuals. Mm. Well, well said. And, Kevin, I'm sure you're very excited about those potentials for technological development and advancement. How did you know that? Um, it was just a wild guess, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am very much, Susan, and you know, thank you for that uh, as detailed as you could get in just a few minutes of that explanation. Sure, no problem. Yeah, it's kind of tough to wrap up three years' worth of work into a couple minutes, but I hope I was able to do that. Well, well I'd appreciate season. any. Yeah. Well, when I was going to say, I'd appreciate any opportunity that you have to know more, and certainly send me in that direction. You can certainly email me directly, Kevin at InnovativeNurse.com, or just on your LinkedIn profile or wherever. I'll try to find that, but I would love to know more about that and where that's going. Sure. be happy to. And, and um, I am on LinkedIn. Anybody can find me there, and I'm happy to, um, to answer any questions or follow up or um, provide inspiration for other people who might be thinking about the same pathway um, or or just have questions about this pathway. And that was really my reason for responding to you, Keith, originally when you reached out to me, is that um, I was um, hoping that we could use this platform as a way to um, really um, explore um, and explain the uh, role of a DMP, the opportunities of a DMP, and, um, and to inspire people that it's really anything that you want it to be. Um, I hope to get involved more with policy, and, um, of course, I'm continuing to be dedicated to even a small number of students that I can help to um, open their eyes and support them to become the best practitioners that they can be. Mm. Well, thank you, Susan. That's a wonderful goal and a, and a personal and professional mission. And if there's ever anything you'd like to communicate to our audience about what you're doing with the wireless technology, or also if you'd like to write a blog post for our blog, 
about some of the more salient points we covered about the DNP designation, we'd really welcome that if you ever have have a moment where you'd like to do that. Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show, and have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this um, some thoughts. Great. Thank Thanks, you. Susan. Good night. All right. Good night. Good night. Well, Kev, so I, I have a little bit more clarity about the DNP designation, but I feel like there's a lot more I still need to learn about it, honestly. Well, I think it's I think it's difficult because, like I said, this really came to me in 2007, five, six years ago. Um, and to really put this in a one-hour show, I think Susan did a fantastic job with what uh, what time she had available to her to really pull all that in and as she talked about the years of research and uh, devotion that she had put into this particular designation. But right. there are plenty of us out here, whether we know just a little bit or, or really nothing about it. I mean, we are all still very intrigued and interested in this opportunity for, for nurses uh, in the nursing profession really as a whole. Right. And I'll be interested to see over the next several years how this develops in terms of if there's ever actual requirement that advanced practice nurses move to that doctoral level. It sounds like we're not quite there yet, but eventually there may be consensus about that. So that'll be an interesting bridge to cross when we get there as a profession. Well, yeah, and and I think, you know, I've been in message boards here, you know, forums, open forums where nurses are discussing that, and there's a little bit of banter back and forth, you know, sort of the blue-collar nurse versus the white-collar nurse in regards to, and, and you really hit on those points, and that's what I was really asking Susan, too, you know, regarding the, the entry level for nursing being a bac- baccalaureate degree. And then, of course, for advanced practice, you know, the entry level starting to be really a DNP or, you know, a clinical doctorate, uh, as, as right. people were talking about. Of course, you know, Susan tried to break that down that it wasn't just strictly a clinical doctorate because, you know, she doesn't do advanced practice prescribing, diagnosing, and things like that. But, again, I hope that we as as a nursing community can really kind of come to some sort of agreement uh, whether we agree to disagree, but that we can have some kind of uniformity here uh, regarding our education and obviously the practice that we are uh, implementing day to day, whether we are RNs or advanced practice nurses or researchers uh, or various types of clinicians. So, Right, just- exactly. You know, during that conversation, it did make me think back on the days when well, some of our listeners may not know this, but back in the day, before there were master's level nurse practitioner programs, a lot of nurse practitioners were earned that designation in a diploma program. And mm-hmm. and many of them have been grandfathered in. I've known a number of nurse practitioners who actually don't have master's degrees. Now, those diploma programs no longer exist, just like the old nursing diploma programs no longer exist in that hospital setting. So I'm wondering, in 10 years, will we be looking back on the NP designation the same way? You know, will that will that entry-level sort of go by the wayside like the diploma NP did? Well, valid point, Keith, because we can look at the various uh, other providers out there when we talk about OT. So I was actually friends with an occupational therapist. She had finished her, completed her OT 
uh, training or degree rather, and she was baccalaureate prepared. She was one of the last students graduated before they went to a master's entry level, and that's across the board now. Same thing with we're, we're talking about physical therapy, doctor, uh, you know, doctorate degrees in uh, physical therapy, and then we also talk about our pharmacists who now are PharmDs. You know, so you know that's I think again the the question is valid because again these areas are really focusing heavily on. You, you know, the master's degree or the doctoral degrees for entry level and completion. And so, you know, I think there are nurses out there that think that we're creating some barriers to entry when it comes to, especially to advanced practice, because you think, okay, well, I've got to go for that. If you're talking about associates uh, prepared RN, then they have to get their uh, BSN and then their uh, MSN, you know, for advanced practice, then, you know, that's, that seems a little bit overwhelming, although I will give credit to some of the institutions out there, many of them rather, that are doing those associate bridge programs, uh, you know, RN to MSN programs. And, and I think that's kind of been helpful regarding the barriers. Right, right. So we'll, we'll just have to see how things develop. It'll be a good thing to keep our fingers on that pulse over the next year or so, and maybe we might have to have Susan back on for some sort of roundtable if we realize that things are changing, say, in 2013 or 14 or 15, and uh, just see what's happening in that regard. So it'll be it'll yeah, be an think, interesting thing to watch the development. I agree. Well, hey, speaking yeah. of roundtable, do we have one coming up soon? Oh, my gosh. Well, Next week is sort of a roundtable on March 11th. We have board members from the American College of Nurse Midwives, and they're really going to be talking about the state of nurse midwifery and childbirth in the United States. So it's kind of a roundtable, but they're all board members who know one another from the ACNM. Now, on the 18th, it's not a roundtable. We have Jay Paradisi. She'll be exploring the intersection of art, creativity, and nursing. So she's a very talented painter and creative individual who also happens to be a nurse. And then the 25th is kind of a roundtable. It's members of the Rejuvenation Collaboration. So we'll have a number of coaches and nurse thought leaders who are going to be involved in that Rejuvenation Collaboration, which you and I are involved in as well, right, Kevin? I believe I did get an invite. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think we are did. very much involved, and we are very glad to be involved uh, with that project. That's right. So those are the next three weeks in March where we have some really wonderful guests scheduled, two groups of guests actually for the 11th and 25th, and then April has some wonderful guests coming as well as May. So things are pretty exciting. And speaking of exciting, Kevin, anything happening on Innovative Nurse? Anything new, new videos, anything you'd like to talk about? Um, let's see. Well, I posted something today about, and I, and I think this is always a source of contention when it comes to entrepreneurs, uh, especially nurse entrepreneurs out there, about finding your worth, uh, figuring out what it is to charge for your fees. I posted a video today uh Basically saying that, yes, you are worth it. Your clients know that you're worth it. You just really need to understand that you are worth it. And entrepreneurs are oftentimes their uh, worst critics. We create our own obstacles and hurdles and speed bumps to get over. And really what it comes down to is stop. You know, don't do that. So I would encourage you to go over to Innovative Nurse. If you go to InnovativeNurse.com, I have the YouTube button right up in the right corner, and you can check out that latest uh, video post that I put up regarding how entrepreneurs really need to embrace the idea that um, you need to charge what you're worth. So 
just slowly ramping up, uh, you know, as I'm coming out again, the loss of my mother over the last couple of weeks. And so slowly but surely I'm moving forward. Um, right. But anyway, how about you, sir? What is going on in your world? What's going on in my world? Well, I'll point people over to Digital Doorway, my blog at digitaldoorway.blogspot.com. It was or I was nominated by nursingdegree.org as one of the top 50 nursing blogs on the Internet this past week. So I was very humbled and honored to be chosen for that designation. And I have a couple other... Wait, where's the applause? Oh, we for- I forgot the applause thing. All right, well, I'm... I'm- I'll just clap for you right there. Uh, I couldn't find the applause. Here here, here they are. Here they are. Good Uh, job. There you go. So that was exciting. That was very kind of them to uh, include me in that. And I also wanted to let people know, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again, that I'm starting a coaching group for nurses, nurses who'd like to really have the camaraderie of being together on a coaching call. And there will be four nurses joining me starting Thursday, April 4th, and it will be three calls a month. And they'll also have one call with me during the 90-day period when we'll be coaching together. So I'm really excited to find four nurses who'd like to work with me and really have a lot of fun and laughs and and really a really deep, intimate time between the five of us really going deep into our needs and how to take care of ourselves or how to move our careers forward. So that's coaching, group coaching with me, and I'm inviting anyone who's listening to let me know if they'd be interested. Fantastic. Well, and I really think that that's a great platform to, again, I said it last week, I've said it to you off the air, I think that's a wonderful opportunity for nurses to not only, you know, spread the the financial costs, uh, you know, so that they can you know, obtain those services. But again, I really feel like those small group settings are really valuable because someone who might be a little more standoffish or in the background might be reluctant to share a story, but then someone in the group shares a story and then that really opens the doors up for them uh, to, right, to engage. Right. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to say about group coaching is that even though you may be listening to someone else tell their story or be coached by me, in, in the presence of the rest of the members of the group, that often others are telling your story and you can often relate to what others are talking about so that there's there's a synthesis that happens between the members of the group that can be really powerful. And Kevin, I just had this brainstorm that maybe at some point you and I will offer group coaching together and we can work with nurse entrepreneurs who are trying to start businesses or start independent practices and people could work with us with the two of us in a group setting. Did somebody just notice a light bulb above my head or your head? Fantastic. Uh, no, I can't see you, but I, I can feel it. I can feel it lighting up. Well, I hope you can. I'm coming in. Of course, it is a an eco-friendly or earth-friendly bulb. We are uh-huh. only working at about 15 watts, but it's actually putting out 1,500 watts uh, worth of lumens and power. Uh, but But really, we are eco-friendly. That bulb above my head. But that is a great, great idea, Keith. And wow, yes, well, I wish, yes, we will be doing that. Okay, well, I wish we were video casting right now and people could see the light bulb, but we'll just have to pretend that it's there. That sounds good. And speaking, yeah. I do want to just wrap up with just one minor piece of business when we talk about business. To all of those uh, out there, whether you're a solopreneur, you are an LLC or a corporation, make sure if you haven't been in touch with your accountant 
or if you do your own taxes, especially if you're an S-Corp designation, your tax filing is due this month, middle of this month, uh, and I believe it is still on the 15th. Let me just double check the calendar uh, because most people do get confused when we file our personal taxes. We do that on April 15th, but again, I think we're not April 15th. We got a couple of more days. Um, did they give us a couple more days this year? I can't remember. Either way, just remember, businesses tend to file their taxes one month earlier than we do our personal taxes, and that's just a heads uh -huh. up and FYI. Well, thanks for that, Kevin, and I'll talk to my accountant about that because we're just finishing up our taxes right now, so I appreciate that. So I wanted to let all of our listeners know that there's some new guest posts up at rnfmradio.com from Phyllis Quinlan and from Catherine Norcutt, who's a new guest blogger who would like to be posting on RNFM Radio on a regular basis, so we appreciate that input. You can find us at facebook.com slash rnfmradio, and we are rnfmradio on Twitter. So please find us, and Kevin's at Innovative Nurse, and I'm at Nurse Keith and nursekeith.com. So, Kevin, I'm going to let you have the last word. I'm going to say goodnight for now, and we'll see you all next week on the 11th. You bet, Keith, and it's always a pleasure spending time with you and with all of our listeners out there and the guests that we have on the show. Hopefully you've felt in some way uplifted, motivated, ready for something that moves the needle for you. You're definitely here in the right place. We want to uh, thank you deeply and sincerely for joining us here on RNFM Radio, whether live on Blog Talk Radio here tonight and every Monday night. 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we're working hard to bring you valuable content while creating a global exchange among nurses and other clinicians to bridge those gaps for the patients that we serve. Thank you so much. Have a blessed evening. Be well, be safe, and take care until we have you on the radio show again.